we don't actually need to design a lifestyle for the individual. We need to design a culture that will benefit the company. That's what we, we're all here to do. And I think that's our obligation. So if slot machines end up with people not being effective and being distracted and being addicted to the dopamine hit, you and I may agree that that's not good for the individual, but the reason we want to change it is right. because we want to improve effectiveness as an organization. I'm Ben Grenell, part of the early startup team here at Levels. We're building tech that helps people to understand their metabolic health, and this is your front row seat to everything we do. This is a whole new level. As a fully remote team, you almost need to over-index on cultural values. You have to be thoughtful. You can't be passive because a lot of them are based on people putting one foot in front of the other at the same time. And with cultural values, you can't be overly prescriptive and say, here's exactly the way we do it. The only way we do it, because really cultures built on the conditions that you create for other people to thrive. But as a remote team, culture can be harder to build. You have to be more intentional about it. The way that everybody aligns on the different initiatives that are undertaken and the way that people work. What you want to ensure is that everybody is on the same page. And as you build the team, as you bring more people on board, it's really important to reinforce these values in the way that a company works. So for us as a team levels, we're very much asynchronous in our approach. And now as we've gotten to 34 people as of November 7th, 2021, well, we've got a cultural handbook, something that Michael Mizrahi, head of operations, put together. It's a reference point for not only new team members, but our entire team to align around and say, hey, these are all things we still believe. These are values that we hold within our team and we value deeply. And so Josh Clementi, founder of Levels, and Sam Corco, CEO and co-founder of Levels, the two of them sat down to discuss this handbook that Ms. had put together and what their outlook was on it. Here's Sam. So one of the concepts is that we're a team, not a family, but this also ties into some of the terminology is that we have teams, not departments. Um, I'm not sure how much this feels like a cultural value to me. Um, also because like today, yesterday, I've lost track of time, but I, I had to define something of the growth org, the operations team, like it, it it's the category. Like I, I would yeah. call that a department. I um, would do. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I'm not, yeah, I'm definitely not married to the teams, not departments thing. I, I think okay. departments makes sense. I know it. Yeah. Corp, big corporations also use department, but yeah, they also call themselves a company and we call ourselves a company. So I, I don't <laughs> okay. think we have to get too worried about that type of thing. Uh, no. To me, it's, I mean, you could, it's specialization. It's, it's like where certain types of right. work happen. It doesn't necessarily imply that one person can't do work for multiple departments. I think that's what we don't yeah, want to totally. end up in. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. I wonder how we can differentiate that because I, I think that maybe just ties into short toes, right? Um, yeah, maybe we can right. have we can have more of the department terminology within the short toes idea. Yeah, like focusing the department description as like the types of work that occur. Um, you know, it's, it's essentially labeling categories of work more so than categories of people. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. I do think we treat each other like adults should be the top one, that's sort of the main concept. It's actually very similar to what uh, Mark Randolph talked about is that um, he said Netflix in many ways was an experiment in what, what does a company look like if you just hire people who have good judgment right? and then you let them do that? <laughs> yep. I fully subscribe. Um, um, I was reading the, we live balanced, wholesome lives, and it got me thinking more about, um, 
this concept of paternalism, I understand what this is saying, but I have maybe have mixed feelings about some of the stuff. Like I'm trying to remember there was uh, there was another thread in which Scott and I went back and forth a couple times. It was on a particular topic. Yeah, I was in principles of effective communication. And it was, uh, Scott proposed, and I actually coincidentally have a conversation with him and Andrew about this later, but he proposed that we should enable the use of Slack and we should just rely on people using them correctly. And we should not be paternalistic in uh, telling people what communication tools they can and cannot use. And I understand what he's saying, but I have, I have mixed feelings about this. And I, I've been thinking for the last several days about what is the, what is the difference between something that's paternalistic and something that is not. Mm-hmm. For, for me, I don't know why yet. I haven't fully worked this out in my own mind, but um, defining what tools and communication cadence and having these types of expectations in the organization don't feel paternalistic to me, but telling people that you're required to exercise for 30 minutes a day and you have to do these certain things like you're not allowed to work on weekends does feel paternalistic but there's also an asterisk to that which is kind of interesting that Mike Haney and I talked about where he said that it's also reasonable to set defaults and to remember that people we operate very differently than most companies. And so there's like years of programming that was already, that people already came in with, and we might have to do some deprogramming. So he gave some examples of, it might be reasonable to set a default just for the first month that says, hey, I know you're used to responding to emails on weekends. We're going to have you install this app. And it's not even going to let you respond to email on weekends for the first month. And just see how that feels because that's the default behavior. And you can change it after the first month. It's not a big deal, but we just want you to know that that is the norm and that's the default. Um, And for some reason, that doesn't feel paternalistic to me. Maybe it's Mm. because it's in the context of of an experiment or it's time bounded or there's more intent behind it. I don't really know. I have mixed feelings about it. Yeah, to me, that one definitely feels paternalistic like it's like Mm. it's as if you're being put in timeout from your own email inbox and you can't like being blocked physically from doing it it's it's similar to the example you gave where like you went to the office at some point on a sunday and it was the door was locked and you're like what the hell i want to do work this is what i want to do like if i want to send an email it's on my mind it's burning a hole in my consciousness i'm just going to write it on a post-it note and stick it on my mirror i'm going to see it every day i'm like why can't i send this damn email um Right. You know what I mean? So that one definitely feels paternalistic, but I understand the intent. And I, to back up one step, companies have an obligation to create structure from chaos. And we can't just say, you know, it's fully democratized, pick your tool set, pick your communication cadence, do whatever works best for you, the individual. I, I, I don't subscribe to that ideology. You know, we, right. we have a responsibility to build a structural, um, you know, an organization with structure in order that we can get things accomplished, um, in a certain way. And we've picked asynchronous remote as the strategy. And like Haney's saying, people don't work that way. I mean, we're in the fraction of a percent. So we need to have some, some guardrails for people to actually merge onto that, uh, that way of working. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is some degree of paternalism is going to be necessary. That Mm. that's where, you know, there is going to be friction there where we have to tell people maybe the, maybe I have a problem with calling rules paternalistic, like parents make rules. Yeah. Yes. But also we have to make rules. And so is that, is every rule that we set as an organization practicing paternalism? I don't think so. I mean, we, we, we have to be okay with, you know, creating structure. So uh, yes, I also have mixed feelings. It's, it's a gray area, but you know, there are, yeah, there are gradations, yeah. locking someone out of their inbox, forcing someone to do 30 minutes of exercise. Both of these things feel like extremes as opposed to the Netflix strategy of saying, here's the culture we're building. We trust you to make good decisions, but this is the way we want things to be run, you know, and it's mm-hmm. okay if you want to deviate a little bit, 
here and there, but use your good judgment and don't pass along uh, cultural values that do not match these. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting, I think one of the principles here that we should try to work through is um, not all rules are paternalistic. Just because something is a rule doesn't mean it's paternalistic. Like you can have somebody who, uh, like hypothetically, you're visiting a friend's house and they say like, we're a shoes off household. And you're like, no, I'm keeping my <laughs> shoes on. Like you're right. not my mom. It's like, or I just don't like having dirty shoes in my house. Like yeah. that's not paternalism. This is just the way that we operate the house. Right. Um, and that's pretty reasonable, but there, there, there is a, I think for me, maybe the, the thing that changes something into paternalism is the, it's for your own good type of stuff. Hmm. And the, it's like, you should exercise because we believe that it's good for you. So you should do it. Um, hmm. Where I think about some of the stuff is, so another interesting case study as it relates to paternalism is uh, when I was talking with, with Chris Jones, I know that you and I talked about this as well, how um, when he started working at Levels and he had to, it took him like two weeks to reset the dopamine pathways of checking Slack all the time. Um, I think he described his previous job as playing whack-a-mole on Slack all day. And that's a really high stress, low productivity environment that we don't want to exist in our company. Um, so given that for most people, I, can, I definitely can include myself in this Slack became compulsive behavior. I, I had to install website blockers to prevent me from checking the slot machine. And, uh, maybe it's okay to enforce that for some period of time to break people of the habit, because I think maybe some of it for me has to do with it's not strictly speaking that we're doing it because it's good for the individual, but because it has downstream effects for everyone else at the organization. I think that this is where I was about to go with it is that you're right. <clears throat> I think, I think in, in your definition of paternalistic, you're right in framing it as something that you must do that is uncomfortable, but it's good for you. It's like, this is, it's almost pastoral, um, you know, mm -hmm. like faith-based or something. Uh, whereas if we instead take the position of the, what's in the best interest of the company, that's what, that's what we're all doing here is, you know, the family versus team concept, like drawing that line and saying, no, we're not a family, we're a team. We, we aren't, you know, we don't actually need to design a lifestyle for the individual. We need to design a culture that will benefit the company. That's what we we're all here to do. And I think that's our obligation. So if slot machines end up with people not being effective and being distracted and being addicted to the dopamine hit. That's you and I may agree that that's not good for the individual, but the reason we want to change it is right. because we want to improve effectiveness as an organization. Right. And maybe drawing the yeah. line there. I hear what you're saying, but that, that is the justification for every paternalistic policy. Like we, we have mandatory vacation time, not because we think that people taking vacations is good, but because we want to have a forcing function for organizational redundancy, where taking time off and not being available means that we have fewer single bus factor events. Yeah. Like when, when Ms. took a week off recently, Zach was able to take over almost all of his responsibilities. And there were a couple things that we discovered maybe we needed more redundancy on them. And that was really useful to surface. And that would not have happened mm -hmm. if he hadn't taken time off. Um, so almost every justification of like, I, I can totally see this as a possibility. Somebody, somebody goes to business school and they read a study that says people who exercise 30 minutes a day have 10% more productivity. Like, great, we need to institute a policy that's good for the company, that everybody should do this thing. Mm -hmm. um, and that might, strictly speaking, be true in the scope of company productivity, but it, it is 
in my mind, clearly misaligned as like a, a strictly paternalistic policy of like, we're going to buy everyone a Peloton and they have to be on it 30 minutes a day because the statistics show people are 10% more productive when they do that. And that's better for the company, right? Yep. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. It's something like uh, modifying personal behaviors under the guise of, of benefiting the company versus modifying behaviors within the context of work, which I think is different. You know, you're saying yeah, you have to go point. to this happy hour to create bonds with your team or you have to get on the Peloton because it'll make you better um, versus saying while you're operating, uh, you know, within on, on company work, here are the, the ways that we do these things. And I, maybe that's the, the delineation is, is just like control work factors, add structure to the way we do work, but don't try and intervene in, you know, don't, <laughs> yeah, feel, it feel, maybe it feels a little bit disingenuous um, to say, this is what's best for you to be, you know, interfering right. in someone's personal life under the guise of improving your, your work. I, I, I don't know. I, I hear what you're saying though. Yeah. I think, yeah, there's some, definitely something about personal life that's relevant. Although again, I can see all of these things being justified of like, oh, okay, well then we'll just do it during work hours. Therefore it's not your personal life. Yeah. I, I think we're definitely going to run into you know, the vacation policy over and over on this one, I think, because by saying you have to take vacation one week per quarter, we're doing this. Maybe instead we should say we have a three weeks per, per, or a, what, what is it? It's four every weeks quarter. Per year. Yeah. yeah. Four weeks per year. Well, it would be the opposite. It would be, we have a 48 week work year. Um, sure. It's, you don't have to go on vacation. You can do you email. Don't, you definitely now. don't have to go on vacation. <laughs> yeah. I go on think weeks. Right. That's how I like to do mine. Um, we could call it something other than vacation. I think this is in our particular case, it's like a legal definition thing, which is why mm -hmm. we call it that. Um, oh, but, pay, paid time off or something. Yep. That's right. But like we could call it whatever we want. Um, I think conceptually that's right. It's not, um, it's, it's not a what's good for you sort of thing. It really is in the company's interest to have this level of redundancy. I think people mm -hmm. really underestimate how important that is uh, in terms of how it just deconstrains and solves for bottlenecks across the organization as having that level of redundancy. Um, I do yeah. wonder the, there's something about agency in this. This, is, this ties into like uh, an adult has agency, right? An adult can say, I'm not doing this thing. A child can't. Um, so the, the after work drinks example, which is a, a common one at companies, which is like, you have to go socialize. You have to go on a play date and mingle with your colleagues. Um, children don't have a choice in that. They're just like forced to interact with other children. Adults can decide whether they would rather have dinner with their wife or watch a movie or uh, do like a 20 mile run if they're Mike DiDonato <laughs> or, or anything else. Yeah. Um, so there's something about agency in it as well, where paternalistic policies reduce agency. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that I, anyway, yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say yes. Yes. But again, related to, I think time outside the context of work. So I, I think, again, when you, when you decide to enter into a work agreement, you are giving up a degree of agency. You're, you're deciding that you're going to be a part of a, an entity that has disagree and commit principles built in. Um, you, know, you, you don't necessarily get to decide all of the ways that you will have to, all the decisions you'll have to make and the ways in which you'll have to make them. You know? So I, I, again, think that there's a delineation there between like recognizing that outside of the context of work, you have agency within the context of work, we're going to have to make decisions that some may dis disagree with to a certain extent. And we expect everyone to respect that, open up dialogue, but at the end of the day, the decision has to be made. Yeah, I, I think one of the other, I'm, I'm starting to, to come to maybe a recognition that this is, this is going to be one of those gray area topics that isn't going to have perfect definition uh, in terms of the principle, 
but maybe we can come up with something that's at least reasonably consistent. Um, I think the one of the other concepts that regularly comes up for me when I think about this stuff is, is how, how does the behavior affect others? And that makes it feel much less paternalistic for me in general when I think about a lot of these things. So we can take the, we can take, uh, I don't know, using text messaging as the default mechanism for communication or Slack like it is for most companies. Um, it is, some people might like it, but it is incredibly disruptive for most people. Uh, there's a reason why basically everybody dislikes it as a workplace communication tool. And we have all of the documentation on that. Um, and by having a subset of people who say, I like this tool, I want to use it. At a certain point, you hit this critical mass where the only way to be involved in conversations is to start using it. And then this is the, the entropy problem. Then eventually everyone is using it. And then eventually conversations, if you're not involved in it in real time, you get left out. So then you need to get push notifications for everything. And then you're in the whack-a-mole situation, which we know that we want to avoid. So mm -hmm. um, it's a similar thing where there, there's a, there's a, there's a trade-off here that I, I don't know quite how to articulate. Uh, we can take a conversation I had with Tom, which I think I've, I've mentioned previously, but um, where Tom is somebody who really does live our values. And he was saying how he knows he doesn't have to respond to email on weekends, but he can't not. And so there's, and it's because of the tool, because email, if you don't use something like Mailman, which is actually interesting, Tom has been using Mailman and he said it's made a huge difference in the way that he interacts with email. Um, there is something to be said for, it is our responsibility as a company to use tools that are not pathological. Um, if, we, if we build a company of slot machines and people have like really compulsive behavior because of that, I think that's bad. Um, so yeah, how do we make a low stress culture? I think we again have to evaluate why we care about lowering stress. Is it to improve mm -hmm. effectiveness as a team or is it to improve the mental health of our employees? Because I think we, it's not up to us, the latter, the former is we should be making decisions in the context of, and it's not that I don't care about the mental health of our employees. It's just yeah. that if we want to avoid paternalism, then we shouldn't be saying, this is what's better for your mental health. And I'll back right. up and say, related to the Slack tool itself, I count myself among those people that actually enjoyed Slack and yeah. I could go back to it and it wouldn't disrupt my life because I found a right. good balance of notification management. And I treated it much like we treat threads. I was not ever in a mode of doom scrolling Slack or in, in the slot machine. Maybe I'm one of the few, but the point I think is that there will always be some people who will prefer one thing over the other. And what we have to decide is, um, we have to build, we have to select for tools that we believe are not pathological to our way of doing work. And, and so yeah. we can, it's easy for us to say, here are the reasons why this tool is not right for our culture. And people can say, well, I like the tool better and that's okay. But at the end of the day, that individual can't, you know, overrule what's best for the organization. And, and so I think we'll always have an easier time making these sorts of decisions. If we just reflect on how it fits into the culture framework that we're trying to build. Yeah. And culture, by the way, we use culture a lot. I think culture also has like belief ramifications and personal elements to it. It's like, I don't know what the, maybe the better term is, is just the company. Yeah. I guess company culture is right. I mean, we use culture values. a lot. And uh, yeah, yeah. It, yeah, it seems to, to me like culture and values and principles, they're all very personal terms, yeah. um, which we use as though we're speaking for everyone. And, um, right. Yeah, some people may not personally hold some of these principles, and that's yeah. okay. We're talking from the perspective of the company. That's right. Yeah, and, and it's one of the things that, especially founders who have scaled organizations, the the reality is that your your values do change over time as you learn more about them. I I remember a few months ago looking at our original list of values, and I remember thinking like, wow, it's interesting how I don't want to use the word juvenile, but like really there, there were like things where 
in a in a very abstract way. We're like, yeah, it'd be nice if that was a thing, but they were not really thought through in any meaningful way. Um, it was like our best articulation of what we thought of at the time. And now, as we've gone through this, it wasn't until like more than a year in that I think we really started to understand and memorialize what our actual values are. Yeah. No, no plan survives first contact. I, I think it was because that was perspective. Yeah. We, we just, we didn't have any context for what we, we wanted values because that's what all these other founders said you have to have. And then, right. but we didn't have the, um, the experience yet to know what was going right. to be most important. Right. So in many ways, that was a good exercise, I think, to show just how far off you can be in right. your ex- expect, expectation versus reality. Right. Yeah. So I, I guess coming back to this document, the, the we live balanced, wholesome lives, I feel mixed about this. Yeah. I, I think maybe a modification could be something like we work in a balanced way or we, we the work environment, it should, it should reflect the way that we want to do work in yeah, a like I, deep reflective it, it, manner or something. Yeah. The, like one of them is, I, I read a book recently that was, that was interesting. Uh, the Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, um, which is an interesting book. It actually comes at it from a Christian lens, which I, I did not know before starting it. Hmm. Um, uh, but there's something about, we, we value deep focused work time. We value deep work in a way that other companies do not. That is a, is that a value? Maybe. I, I personally do not believe that work should be a major source of anxiety in your life. Um, now, that doesn't apply universally. Like if you're underperforming and you're feeling anxious about being fired, it's like, well, and it probably can't be avoided. Um, but by default, like playing whack-a-mole on Slack is a very high anxiety way of operating. And I, I don't, I personally don't want to work in an environment that is that I want to work in a deep focused work environment, which is low anxiety, where I'm able to manage things effectively. Um, so there's something about that. I think this might be what this section is, is hinting at, but the, the terminology in here is definitely different than what I would, uh, what I would agree with. Yeah. You know, when I, when I was reading through this, um, we've implicitly been pushing certain programs or benefits that, that drive for, you know, an interpretation of a balanced, wholesome life. It felt when I was reading it uh, in direct tension with, we treat one another like adults yeah, uh, or maybe, yeah, wherever we mention paternalism, we, we mm-hmm. say something about if we tell our team how to live their lives, e.g. you're required to take vacation on these days without a specific company objective, it feels paternalistic and hypocritical. And then, you know, a few paragraphs down, we say, in addition to standard benefits, we have a mandatory minimum vacation policy. Mm-hmm. And although it's not saying when you have like, you know, a holiday calendar that you have to take these days, right? to me, it, it feels in direct conflict. And, and granted, I think we have company rationale for that. So I do think we should rework this paragraph into something that is focused on the way we want to do work and leaves, yeah, leaves everyone's personal lives to them. For you, think week is your vacation. So maybe you call that vacation. So maybe vacation is still the right term, Um, but sleeping and exercising, everyone's got their own interpretations of these sorts of things. And although I personally believe that we should, as individuals, we can continue to push each other to live in a certain way, like, you know, achieve your goals, whatever that should be done, you know, on a personal level, it shouldn't be a company sanctioned decision. You know, the way whoop is looking at recovery scores, I think, and giving out bonuses based on them. I I think that oversteps. Right. Although we could implement that with the metabolic score. And again, I would, (laughs) I would not be getting bonuses. No. Yeah. I think that that makes sense. Um, Align incentives. I think this is, I understand this one. I think maybe we can come up with a maybe a better idiom or exact terminology for it around the idea. But I, I do think there's something here about um, being customer centric and making sure that we position ourselves so that our incentives are aligned with our members. So 
I agree with this in, in, in concept. Um, yeah, I think the, the one we spent a lot of time on the balanced wholesome lives probably ends up being covered by the, how we work sections. Mm. Like yep. we document everything and we have redundancy, which we reinforce through, yep. you know, a week off per, per quarter, something like that. Yeah. In fact, there, there is a section in here. We are calm, not busy. This one gets a little bit. I think that the utilization versus capacity conversation is a little bit abstract. It doesn't. Yeah. Because of semantic. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's like, what's the difference between capacity and utilization? I think people have different yeah. mental definitions, but at the end of the day, I think the goal that we're trying to say is that you, you're maintaining some air gap to burnout. Yep. So that if you have to pick up some urgent stuff, you can do so without your brain exploding and everything falling yep. apart. Yeah. And it's an interesting thing. The, there has to be slack in the system. And this is what, uh, what they talk about in the context of uh, assembly lines and manufacturing lines in the Phoenix project is you have to have slack in the system in order to take on new work. Um, but one of the other concepts here is related to project debt as well, which is figuring out how to get something. Your, your base load is project debt. I should probably put together uh, some documentation around this and some visualizations because there's some base load of just communication debt, which is like, for me, it's something like 30% or 40% of my time every week is just communication. And that's probably the most of anyone at the company, as I think it probably should be. Um, but everyone will have some. Engineers, it might be 10% is your communication debt, which is just ongoing communication overhead. Um, on top of that is project debt, which is anything you're on the hook for. So in your case, it's like the Friday Forum is project debt. It's a thing that you always have to do every week. Um, it's the ongoing maintenance of things, it's the checking in on stuff. Then there are projects that you can do that either lead to project debt or not. And they can either not because the project is done or you've handed it off to somebody else and now they have the project debt. Um, so there's something in here around the, the situation you don't want to end up in, which is something that happens all the time in companies, is you end up with 100% of your capacity taken up by project debt and you are so underwater, you don't even have the capacity to hire somebody or to document things to hand it off to somebody. And so you get, you just inch closer and closer to burnout by, by ensuring yeah. that you're never at more than 50% capacity with ongoing tasks, like things that involve project debt. It ensures that you can always flex into different things so that you can, it's like, oh, we're, we're now, we now need to hire somebody for this role. I'll get to, you know, I'll go from 60% capacity to 100% capacity for the next two weeks or three months to fill some, to find somebody to fill this role. But it's not, uh, it's not an ongoing concern. Yeah. I think where it gets complicated is defining that capacity. Like I'm going from 60 to 100. It implies that you were at 60% capacity, but I think your intention is to say that you were at 60% on ongoing tasks. Yeah. And you're going to flex up, um, you know, that focus to add hiring for those tasks in order to be able to drop back to 50%. Yeah. And, and I think that's, yeah. that, that's right. I think that's what the capacity concept is. So I think maybe we can, we can, we can play around with the terminology because the, the, the utilization thing I think is also where it gets confusing because they're just arbitrary semantic definitions. Um, Basically, what it's saying is that just because you're only 50 or 60% allocated towards projects doesn't mean that in the rest of the time, you should just like watch YouTube videos. But I'm not even sure if it's necessary to say that, right? Yeah. Hmm. That's a good point. I mean, allowing, allowing for that 40% to be used in the way that the responsible individual, by the way, I'm not using the responsible individual internal program term i'm using like yeah, yeah. a responsible individual will <laughs> yeah, act in right. any way that is responsible and so they will either right. decide that they can um you know 
they can use that 40% to contribute to other projects, to do reflective work, to figure out how to improve their processes. So they're at hundred percent utilization, right? but 60% capacity. And, and I understand the rationale there. It's just that right. I think it feels a little abstract and maybe confusing. Those two terms could be close to synonyms in certain scenarios. So uh, maybe, maybe just like yeah. a loom video for something like this would be yep. most useful. Yeah. And I think some, I think different terminology is helpful. Um, what, what does capacity and utilization, what do those actually mean? And I think, I think there's something in here about project debt and ongoing work that is, is useful. And I'm sure some, some visualizations will help. Um, and maybe some specific scenarios on what it means could also be really useful. Yeah. Something else that's difficult. And I experienced this myself is being reflective about what is project debt that you're working on. Sure. It can often be like, oh no, I'm only at 10%, you know, right. project debt. I'm, there is no project debt, you know, I'm right. just doing my work. And then having a peer review system of some kind where it's like, <laughs> all right, I'm going to sit down and talk through everything I do for a little while with Ben. And Ben's going to be like, dude, you're at 95% project <laughs> yeah, right. debt. Like, you know, and, and so having some system like that, a buddy system or a peer review, we, we did something similar to this. Well, not really. We, we had peer reviews at SpaceX where um, it was just for quality management. Like you would, before going and doing a big presentation with the whole company, you'd instead sit down with one person and walk them through it. And then they'd be like, you know, gut check on whether or not you're, you're in the ballpark. Something like that could be helpful as well, where if people want to have an analysis of, of how they're spending their time, they can get it from somebody who, who maybe is like a third party. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, we, we kind of do something similar to this, uh, coming up with a more consistent, a more consistent cadence for areas of responsibility maps, which I think really help a lot uh, uncover those things. And um, th those are almost all of the times when we've figured out how to chunk work and hand them off to different people and when to hire has come from that exercise. So um, coming up with a more consistent way of doing that, I think would be really helpful. Yep, um, I think that makes sense. Yeah, this is actually related to one of the other cultural norms that I, I've been thinking about as we scale is uh, how do we ensure that we maintain our risk tolerance as we get bigger. Um, I, I had some conversations and thought a lot about why do companies become more risk averse when they get larger, when they should actually become more risk tolerant because every piece is less existential. Um, and a lot of times with these things, you have to ask the question, it's like a, like uh, a, a question of if if everyone is doing it there might be a good reason for that um but that's not always the case it's like maybe the Burkean argument for it mm -hmm. but i i don't think there is actually a good reason i think it is a i think it is loss aversion and i think that we just need to be very mindful of knowing what risks are acceptable and what failures are acceptable and how do we tolerate them as we as we grow yeah i think Taking the big swings is a little abstract. Maybe having, I personally believe that risk aversion is the pathological and mm -hmm. entropic fact or factor. It's that risk aversion increases with security and stability. So as the company gets, it seems like as companies get more and more successful and more stable, risk aversion increases proportionally or even disproportionately. And so saying like, we are not risk averse or we take risks or something like that is, is pretty important. Um, also obviously qualifying that with like, we don't commit crimes, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, of course. you know, but, um, uh, what was the second part of this? I was about to say, yeah, lost the train of thought. It'll come back to me yeah. in a sec, but yeah, um, risk, risk aversion directly, I think is a, is a problem. Yep. The, we have two things that are related here. Um, we have the, the yes and thinking which in some ways ties into the don't be a blocker. Uh, we have two sections here. The, the don't be a blocker talks a lot about passive criticism and making sure that most people don't want to be a blocker. They just don't realize how their input affects the process. Um, they, they add some information and then 
the state of the project is now ambiguous because of that. So making sure that we, we give feedback to people to make sure that we, we, things can always move forward and people know what the next step is, I think is really important. Um, mm. And this ties into yes and, which I think you and I might have a disagreement on maybe with the exact terminology. So don't be a blocker I fully agree with. Passive criticism, I think, is maybe a gray area. I think it's important that people, in general, that people feel perfectly comfortable providing critical feedback. Um, and so having a negative statement about passive criticism is okay. But then when we add in the yes and section where it goes further and says, like, essentially respond with your critical feedback in the affirmative first. To me, it stacks into a, we, we don't want people to disagree with, with a decision. And what I want to make sure we have is an environment where you're perfectly comfortable saying, hey, I, I disagree with this for these reasons. I think we should do it this other way. And having to kind of, I, I have m mostly a concern with the yes and framework because maybe this is supposed to be more metaphorical than, than uh, exact, but having people trying to contort their language to, to be, you know, agreeable, starting with a yes. And instead of just saying, look, there's this better way where I, I, I think this is a really bad idea legitimately and hear me out. This is, these are what the reasons why, rather than saying, yes, yes, I agree with this and we should do something totally different. Not this. Um, that's yeah. what I have trouble with. It's it's almost like, I don't like forcing speech patterns. It, it feels yeah, yeah. journalistic. It it's very much not an enforced speech pattern. Um, it's actually just a concept from improv. Um, right. And I, I think we should actually go back one step. I, I, I have very strong feelings on passive criticism, um, much, much stronger negative ones than I think you do. I think part of this is that, uh, this is an interesting thing that's shown in, uh, in studies that uh, people who are critical are perceived as being more intelligent than those who are not, um, which can create this incredibly toxic spiral mm -hmm. of like everyone just becomes a critic and nobody's actually building anything. Everyone's just criticizing the ideas of the builders. Yep. And there's a big difference between saying like, I think your idea sucks. It's like, thanks for the note. <laughs> <laughs> and like, I think there's this, I hear what you're saying, but I think there's a better way to do it, which would be this other way. Um, one of those is passive criticism. And sometimes it's okay to not necessarily have a great alternative. So like you, you've maybe seen in some of my, one of my recent threads, I don't remember exactly what it was, but I, I think it was in the uh, JM recommended some terminology and I didn't, there was something about it that didn't sit right. Uh, I think it was about like levels premium versus uh, membership versus something. And I didn't really have a great answer for it. So I didn't throw it up as a blocker. And I explicitly called out, like, I don't have strong opinions about this. So don't consider this a blocker. But here are some thoughts of why maybe it seems weird to me as opposed to just saying like, no, this sucks. Yep. Um, also, I think part of it is because I also didn't think that it was bad, strictly speaking. Um, I just didn't really, something seemed strange about it to me. Um, and and yeah. would you describe that as passive criticism or was that, what, what, what is that in exchange in your opinion? It's somewhere between constructive and passive. Like I, I didn't have an alternative in mind. Um, so there wasn't a clear path forward other than just like putting the ball back on him. Mm -hmm. um, but it wasn't, it wasn't strictly passive because I engaged in the conversation. That, that one for me was more in the gray area. I think one of the, one of the other things that's related to the passive criticism point and the don't be a blocker is we should also encourage people to directly contribute when it makes sense. Yeah. Like it's, 
it's okay to just directly edit the document if you have a strong opinion about something in most circumstances. Like, sure, we, we can envision a future scenario where we have too many people that are doing this. And then, you know, we can address that when it happens. But mm -hmm. I can tell you from my experience, 90% of the time, maybe 99% of the time since working at Levels, when Ms. or Ben or somebody makes a direct edit to a document that I wrote, it's like, yeah, that's, that's correct. Great. Yep. Now I don't have to edit that myself. And it just saves us a step. Yeah. And I think we have a good culture around that where people will edit and then they'll add a comment and say, Hey, added this thing. That's and, right. and that way you have traceability. I think that's what's, what's important. Mm -hmm. And we have traceability built in, but it shouldn't be on the original author to like go looking through page history to see who did what just, you know, surface it as I made this yeah. edit with, with the example you gave, I agree it's in the gray area, but the intention is what matters. In my opinion, mm -hmm. your intention is to give the full picture as it's like, this isn't a complete thought, but here are the things that feel off about this. And so, you know, maybe you can use these breadcrumbs to, to find a different alternative. If not, no big deal. Right. That to me is not passive criticism. And I want to make sure that that exchange can be protected. And, and that's why I have a little bit of a concern about just talking about passive criticism is, and not providing what we want. Maybe we should focus yeah. on, here's what we want. If you're going to provide criticism, like ensure that you have some degree of like your intention should be constructive. We have to move forward as a company. It's your responsibility. If you're going to, to raise issues to also provide, if not an alternative solution, at least be constructive in working with the person to, to understand why you feel the need to criticize it. Yeah. My, I agree with you that someone just throwing landmines out constantly is a disaster that that person needs to modify their behavior, but at the same time, criticism has a role. You know, we need, we, we can't just be yes people to each other all the time. There are going to be problems and we have to be able to help each other understand and solve them. Um, yeah. and, and disagreement has a, a place. Yeah. So to this is the short, the... To this is the short toes rationale. It's like you need short toes because people will disagree with you and that's okay. And you're going to work together. You're on the same team. Yeah. I think the, where, where the, the yes and comes into it is taking this from improv. It's, it's not, it's has very little to do with like enforcing specific terminology and much more around the mindset that I think is what we should capture, which is that, um, there are no correct answers. There are only trade-offs in the world. And I think the, I can just talk about some personal experiences that I've had in, in workplaces historically, which is they, they've been cultures that overemphasize the criticism. And when people come up, so the, the intent within the improv world of the yes and is that it's, when you come up with a new idea and you put yourself out there, you're, you're taking some risk, like some real emotional risk of like, I have this thing that I think is great. I'm going to put it out in the world. And if, as soon as you do that, you have 10 people that say, your idea is terrible. I hate you. <laughs> you're like, well, okay, I'm never going to do that again. I'm just going to sit in my corner and throw bombs like everyone else and just be a critic. And so it's really just about uh, in the context of improv where it's, it's even more the case where most of your ideas are going to be bad. I, I personally, I don't perform improv, but I like going to improv. I even like bad improv. Mm. Like I, in some ways I like it more because you can just see how much they're trying. Right. And like, it, it really is a brave thing to do to just like go out there in front of a group of people and like try to make jokes about stuff that we're not prepared. It's really hard. And it's the same sort of thing with ideas where on the one end of the spectrum, if somebody has an idea and they put it out there, we don't want the first five comments to be criticism of how bad their idea is because then that person's probably never going to contribute again. And I can tell you in my own experience, I'm, I'm kind of past this threshold in my life now where I just don't care. <laughs> but, you know, for the first five, six, seven years of, of my professional career, it would have been like really hurtful to just have everyone tell me how bad my idea is. And I would just say, all right, fine. I'm just going to not do that anymore. 
no more building. I'm just going to be a critic like everyone else. And then everyone's going to think I'm smart and no one's going to make fun of me and like make me feel bad. Um, and so I think over anchoring on, like, even if the idea is objectively bad, it's like appreciating that the person put their, their neck on the line and like had this idea and went for it. It doesn't have to mean we say like, yeah, that's a great idea. I, I, I think we should totally do this and we should do this. It's more like it's, it's, the, it's the positive reinforcement of like, it's sort of like how we're, we're, we're trying to positively reinforce failures. It's the same exact thing, mm -hmm. um, which is not like, it's okay to criticize something in the context of like, this was a failure, failures are bad, but that's also a good thing. And so it's the same thing with yes and. It's like, when you, when you say something that is actually not funny, in the context of improv, you don't say like, yeah, you're not funny. Right. You're like, yeah, okay, great. And this other thing that's completely different and we're going to take it this other direction. And let's just like try to keep it positive. Yeah, I mean, I, I fully agree with the motivations and it's an important cultural value or feedback loop that we need to build. What I, I think I specifically have a problem with saying employ yes and you know, in language. If someone has an idea, Say, don't say this yeah. thing, just say yes. And, and that's the difficult thing for me is that this will read like an instruction manual for new people. Yeah. Okay. So when I, when I want to give feedback, I have to agree with the bad idea. And then, you know, the goal is positive reinforcement. People are trying to push the company forward and achieve our, our goals. And so sure. here's one way that that's done in, pro in improv. Yes. And is the strategy, you know, right. the intention here is positive reinforcement and solutions oriented discussion. And, um, maybe I'm over indexing on this, but I read this as an instruction manual, like make sure that you don't say no, say yes. And, and right. I will never, I probably will never use that figure <laughs> yeah. because it just, it, that's just not how my brain processes it. And I don't think right. I'm overly negative when giving feedback. I, I right. totally agree with you. I've had to be, you know, in my first PDR in front of a bunch of much better engineers who go to work on shredding my, my work to bits <laughs> and it sucks. And I, I don't think we want that experience to happen, but we do want there to be an opportunity for learning. If there is a better mm -hmm. way, people should be able to clearly articulate that. You know, right. that, that's my intention. So may, maybe there's a rework to do here. Maybe I'm over-indexing, but uh, yeah. it comes across as an instruction. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying because in the, in the paragraph itself, it, it does give like specific terminology to use. So maybe it's more of a description of the mindset. Yes, the yeah. position how to position feedback is like right. the, the, remember that this person put effort into it and maybe they didn't, right. maybe they just mailed it in and that's a different thing. Yeah, you know, for if, sure. if someone mails it in, like we have bigger problems and we, yeah, we need to totally. address them differently. Yeah, definitely. Which is even slower than phoning it in. <laughs> <laughs> Why did I say mail it in? Is that even a thing? <laughs> yes. If they phoned it in. <laughs> That, that went over a DSL line. That's actually quite quick. Yeah, that's right. Um, improve continuously is one that I, I like as a concept. The more we do it, the better. And we adding this into onboarding has been really cool to just make it very clear to people. It's sort of like for engineers, when you getting every engineer to where they ship something in production on day one, it's really empowering to have them realize that they have the ability to do this. Whereas in other companies, you're just like a cog in the machine mm -hmm. and you feel trapped. Um, when you can get something on your first day into production, that's a really cool, empowering feeling. And I think similarly in the onboarding process, making it clear, like, no, no you are responsible for improving onboarding right now make yep. the edits directly, you improve it. There's no saying like, man, the onboarding process sucks at this company. If it does, that's your fault because you went through it. Totally so agree. That's, uh, that's a big part of it. Yep. The, yeah, I also think the yeah. role with the punches, um, I, I think roll with the punches and improve continuously connect to each other through the short toes concept as well, where mm -hmm. I, I think the goal is that people, people should feel this goes back to the, to the yes and conversation, but 
people need to maybe this maybe roll with the punches is striking me as short toes in a sense yep. might be um because it's like yeah don't get caught up in don't don't over index on the negative that that can happen mm-hmm. a lot where people are like everyone's always tearing me down and i feel like my work is just getting edited and notioned by other people and right. um you know taking a big picture lens is really important and appreciating if someone's going to go in and edit your work like great they just did something for you um right you know yeah so that that kind of feels maybe a little bit redundant to me but maybe Mm -hmm. maybe it's separate i don't know yeah we can we can tie some of these in together Mm -hmm. um another one is uh make yourself obsolete which i agree with in principle i wonder how that is interpreted because I know there are companies that have similar concepts. Fiefdom culture uh, still rules the day. So I think one, it's a, I think it's a policy at Google that if you make, if you, if you make your job redundant, they guarantee that you will not lose your job. Um, and yet, I think it's pretty obvious from anyone who has worked at Google that making yourself redundant or making yourself obsolete is not something that people do. So, so what is the the more underlying value there? So reminds me actually, I I, I don't think it's released yet, but uh, Breeden did a podcast on, yeah, it's really good on basically what, what his experience has been like starting in support and working his way into soon will be responsible individual uh, type of role, like his mm-hmm. his scope has really increased, and he's been growing a lot professionally. And so, I think some of this is for me. I I'm thinking of one company in particular. I know the CEO, so I'm going to try to not be too specific. <laughs> um, they very much have a culture of you are hired to be this particular cog. And you are never allowed to do anything other than that. Um, so maybe this relates to short toes, because short toes, I think, in the GitLab definition, is anyone can contribute to any part of the organization at any time. Yeah. If you're an ops and you want to do something in growth, go do that. Yeah, I think the make yourself obsolete kind of comes from improve continuously. The goal is to improve mm. continuously. Yeah, for um, yourself to, and for the company. Right. The end is not to make yourself obsolete necessarily. Right. Because um, you could, theoretically, you could do that by being like, oh, I deleted Help Scout. Now I have nothing to do. <laughs> <laughs> but people's emails aren't getting answered. It's If you can improve right. continuously and get to the point where, yeah, you, you've taken on some, maybe it's like systems thinking or, or what have you, but I think it extends beyond the individual. Uh, really, the risk aversion conversation. I mean, the reason that companies are risk averse is that they are afraid to obsolete themselves, their own, they do not obsolete the things they're doing. And so maybe it's make things obsolete, improve continuously kind of covers it, but yeah, we, we want to obsolete systems with better systems constantly. And, and so at the individual level, being able to put things on autopilot and move up, up a, degree of abstraction and take on other roles across the company. Great. Um, at the product level, producing something better and deleting the old thing should be the best feeling in the world, uh, right. as opposed to something that's, that's fought over, which, which is the innovators dilemma. So, yep. yeah, I, I think that's right. Improve continuously, make things obsolete. So, something where those two merge together, I, I believe is yeah. more what we're going for. Yeah. Cause it applies. This might also tie into short toes in some way I, as a culture we believe in this continuous improvement the we we are to just use the the anchor on the other side we are not the we hired you to be a customer support specialist for the next four years and stay in your lane that's that's one side of how this operates and we're basically the exact opposite which is we're always trying to give people opportunities to uh to improve themselves and to improve the process. We're, we're not looking for people who color inside the lines. Yes. In fact, and the difficult thing is it's not that we are giving opportunities. Like the, that almost feels like someone has to be sure. responsible for making sure that you know there's this other opportunity. It's 
it's your responsibility to find ways in which you yeah. can improve things consistently. Yeah. And the, it's everything that's not currently improved. <laughs> you know, that's, right. the, that's the domain of the things that should be improved. And so we want a culture right. where when someone raises a, a problem, like, hey, this thing is slowing me down. You know, the, the first question is, you know, and this gets tricky when you're, when you're really slammed and projects are behind and things like that. But at the end of the day, that should be a, Hey, this, we need to change this. Like we need to implement this other thing. I would do it if I had the time, but unfortunately I'm, I'm completely drowning on this other thing. And that should be probably an escalation or a cross department conversation, but it's, it's always grounded in what needs to be improved uh, as opposed to just a complaint, like a passive criticism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think actually know the tools ties into that improve continuously. I think the idea is improve continuously means not only company processes, but it means yourself as well. Mm -hmm. um, I do wonder how we, a culture that I don't want to build is the up or out culture, which is famous at like GE, where yeah. either you get promoted every year or you get fired. Mm -hmm. I think there are people who are in a role that they like and they're very comfortable there and they're performing adequately and that should be fine. I think for them, as long as they're performing adequately, that's fine. But there is still the expectation that they will be improving the systems around them. Right. Yeah, I think that that's driving at a point where improvement is conflated with moving up the ladder or something. Sure. If you're not improving unless you're moving into management. And True. I totally agree that we don't want to implement. Some of the best engineers I know, shout out Jesse McElhaney, he, <laughs> he does not, he'll never be a manager. He does not care to manage people, but he's just an extraordinary individual contributor. Yep. And um, I know I know several people like that. And I think that's what you're driving to is like a subject matter expert. Maybe they're not an expert at the earlier stages in their career, but eventually they get there, right? Because that's that's the track they're on is getting better at their Right. domain. And yeah, we, we definitely want space for that role. Yeah. It doesn't interfere with the improve continuously concept. You know, theoretically right. they should be getting better every day and their capacity should be expanding if they're staying in that, in that sort of localized focus. Right. Are there any other top level cultures or values that you think are missing from this? Hmm. One thing like the be a responsible executor, I, we could probably reinforce that. I mean, this is sprinkled throughout the improve continuously, make yourself obsolete. We want to clearly state that everyone at the company, there's no cap on your responsibility level or your accountability. Yeah. Like you don't have to ask permission. Typically you shouldn't like hold back from making an improvement. And I, again, I, I think this is covered, but we just really want people to feel unblocked to, to fix things. You are responsible. You're, you're a part owner of the company, this sort of concept. So I, I don't think it's new. It's just reinforcing that explicitly. When I was writing up the, the JD for one of the roles this weekend, I, I was saying that explicitly, like we are a company where you are going yep. to have a lot of responsibility and accountability. Yep. Um, so I just feel like we, we can just state that clearly somewhere in here. Yeah. And we can, we can add, I remember there was a story you told me about, um, how that works when you were at SpaceX and how you said something along the lines of how uh, every engineer has Elon's cell phone number. And if they find something that's wrong, they tell him like, no matter if they're like, like level one technician and they see something that might explode the rocket ship. Yeah. They have yeah, the ability would, to pull the plug on it. That's right. He, he would send an email before launches and it was like, you know, uh, I don't know, a few weeks out when things are getting really tense and he'd be like, every person at this company is responsible for ensuring this rocket does not explode. If you know of something that you don't feel has been adequately, uh, you know, taken care of or yeah. is being paid attention to, this is my cell phone number. It's your responsibility to stop this thing from happening. <laughs> right. Um, which comes from the challenger experience where hmm. tons of people knew that the O-rings were going to fail on, on challenger. Like really? Well, yeah. But at some high level, some ivory tower decision was made where like, no, for PR reasons, we're going to launch anyway under the thermal like limitations of the, of the O-ring and oh. somebody didn't have the cell phone number that, that they needed, you know, and, and just making sure that maybe that's, maybe that's something is like hierarchical barriers don't exist here. Right. You know, something like that where yeah. 
yeah, you can give feedback. You can raise concerns directly to Sam or maybe to Ben, whoever's closest yep. to the problem. Yep. And if it's not getting solved, like escalate, but right. um, yeah, I think that's an important one, especially as, as more totally. people come on, they will feel as though hier hierarchy exists, even if we, we don't want there to be. Yeah. And this relates a lot to, it's not specifically, but it's related to what we're talking about improving continuously. There's some, there's something in there about agency of the individual within our company that I think is unusual in most organizations. Yeah. Yeah. Agency is the right word. It's that combines responsibility and accountability. You have agency yeah. right? and are expected to use it. Yeah. Hmm. That's a good one. Like a critic is somebody who sits in their armchair and just pokes holes in other people's ideas. That's their job. Yeah. And I think we need exactly zero of those in the company. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The armchair critic, the Monday morning quarterback, seeing the totally. I told you so types. Yep. Yeah. Both of those are just like criticism for no real benefit to yep. the organization. Yeah. Um, yeah, I agree.